Bible and open to the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel again, uh, to chapter 5. So this morning we're picking up where we left off last week. We're taking a chapter at a time. And so that means we're in Daniel 5 this morning. And if you're familiar with this chapter, even if you're not, we're going to think about um, the writing on the wall, sort of a... Each, each chapter in these early chapters of Daniel sort of give, each has its own like just kind of well-known story. So last, or uh, two, two chapters ago was being thrown in the fiery furnace, and then last week was sort of Nebuchadnezzar going crazy, <laughs> coming back. This, this week's the handwriting on the wall, next week's the lion's den, so it's these, all these famous uh, stories, but this week in chapter 5 is the writing on the wall, and that's a, that's a phrase that you hear thrown about uh, still today, um, the writings on the wall, what does that typically mean when somebody says the writings on the wall, what is, huh, yeah, it's, 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 it's the end, or it's, the, the outcome is certain, like, and it's usually not a good one, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's something's inevitable, and it's not usually a, a positive thing, but a negative one. And that, that phrase comes from this story. It's, the, it's sort of the famous story of, of a hand appearing out of nowhere with a message from the Lord to the king of Babylon, which Daniel would, uh, as he has already several times in this book, would interpret for him. <clears throat> but before we dive into to the specifics of the story, we need to read it together. And then ask God's blessing for us uh, as we study His Word again. So again, if you're open to Daniel 5, let's just uh, read it together in its entirety. King Belshazzar made a great feast. All right, let's just follow right there. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, this is post-Nebuchadnezzar now. Nebuchadnezzar's gone off the scene now. Belshazzar is the king. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, uh, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees Knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in and they could not read the writing, or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color was changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen 
because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Or as we might interpret that, the Holy Spirit is within him. In the, day, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom and the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and uh, understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Dan- Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one, uh, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you drank, you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose all are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mini, Mini, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mini, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, 
the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray. Father, please give me the help that I need to teach this passage and to teach the truth in it, to teach that truth um, clearly and, uh, and without, without error. And I pray that you would give all of us ears to hear this truth, give us minds to understand it, give us hearts to embrace it and receive it, love it, Give us wills to obey and examine ourselves and live in light of this truth. Again, please, Lord, give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so what we, just, what we just read in this chapter are during the, the, the final days of the Babylonian Empire. We have been in the Babylonian Empire the whole time we've been in this book. I mean, the background we gave in the first chapter was... I mean, it's even made mention that when he, when Daniel came in, um, when Daniel came in, and he, he says in verse thirteen, Belshazzar says, he says, "You are that Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah." Remember, that's kind of what's going on in this story. The Babylonians were the were the 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 dominant power of that day, and they had come in and conquered the the tiny uh, nation of Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom when Israel had split between north and south. Ten of the twelve tribes were Israel. They had already been conquered by the Assyrians. And then Judah, the, the remaining two, had been conquered by the Babylonians, the superpower of the day. Well, now the life of that Babylonian empire had, lived, had come to an end. And, and another, another nation was about to, to take its place. Um, but what we have in chapter 5 are the... the, the um, the last days of that empire, um, the very high point of that empire was under Nebuchadnezzar, but now he's gone, right? And so chapter 5 fast forwards to the very end of that kingdom under a ruler named Belshazzar. Just a little interesting little tidbit. Um, uh, Belshazzar's father was actually, historical records, Belshazzar's father was actually the king of uh, Babylon at that time. But he was so unpopular <laughs> that he left town, right, and, and put his son, Belshazzar, uh, in charge. And that's why a couple of times in this chapter when, he's, when he says, whoever can tell me the interpretation of this dream, I'm going to shower him with gifts, and he'll be third in the kingdom. Not second, because he was second, right? His father was actually the king, right? They treated Belshazzar as the king, though he was second in power. And whoever could do it, he'd be third in power. But anyway, just a little, um, little tidbit. We're not told a great deal about Belshazzar, about his life, about his reign, about his kingship. Um, but I, I, it's, I don't think it's uh, incoincidental that the, or inconsequential that the, the one story we do have about Belshazzar here, it sort of tells us all that we need to know about him. I mean, he's throwing a great big party. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And I, and it, but I'll tell you, we need to, we need to um, think carefully, though, about how we think about him because there's a lot of us in Belshazzar, just as there was a lot of us in Nebuchadnezzar. So here's, here's how I want to break this chapter up and think about it. Uh, I think it just divides up into three segments. And so in the first segment, verses 1 through 4, we're going to think about the pride of Belshazzar. The pride of Belshazzar. 
verses 1 through 4. And then as we move through, um, walking through back through this chapter, in verses 5 through 12, we'll, we'll see and think about the presence of God shown, as you can see, in a very unique way through a hand appearing and writing on the wall. And then finally, sort of throughout the rest of the chapter, we're just going to think about the, what the writing was and what it meant. And so finally, the purpose of God. That's, that's specifically laid out to Belshazzar. Um, it carries a message for us, though. So in this way, I want to walk back through the chapter and, uh, and, and make, maybe make a couple of applications to us along the way. And so let's think first about the pride of Belshazzar. And like I said, this is the only time he appears in, in, in Scripture. This is all we know about him besides other, I mean, within the Bible, this is all we know about him. And again, what's he doing? He's, he's throwing a party of epic proportions, and it's not in a good way. Uh, the, the, his, the pride and arrogance of Belshazzar just sort of leaps off the page. I mean, just from the very first verse, verse 1 says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, that's, that's impressive, but I mean, just, just think the waning days, I mean, uh, Belshazzar was a, a shadow of his predecessor, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, because as evil as he was, Nebuchadnezzar ruled for many, many years and was known for expanding his kingdom and, ha- and had built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of, of Babylon, and built into a mighty empire. And, and, and for all his evil, we've seen over the last few chapters in Daniel, namely culminating the last chapter we looked at, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and showed remarkable patience with him to, for God to bring him to the place that he needed to bring him. Not, not just for Nebuchadnezzar's good, but for God's glory. Like that's, that's what he brought Nebuchadnezzar to do. It's not like Nebuchadnezzar got saved, right, as we would say it. I, ne- I never see him repenting of his sins or, or, or start offering sacrifices to the Lord or anything like that. But what, what does he do? He, he writes a letter to all his kingdom, giving God the glory, and said, he is the most high. He brought him to a place where he publicly acknowledged the, the rulership of God. And that's how, by the way, that's how God works throughout all the scriptures. Let me just give you a couple examples. They're not going to be on the screen, but like from the very beginning, like if you want to hold your place, if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 7, um, this is how, for example, God dealt with Pharaoh. Uh, back in back in the, the the days of the Exodus, and um, and this is uh, in Exodus seven. This is when God is telling Moses, and because <laughs> Moses, um, in some ways, was a coward, he brought Aaron, his brother Aaron into the deal. Um, he's talking to Moses and Aaron and telling them what to go and say, and and here's what he tells them, beginning in verse. Three, he says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So he was gracious to Nebuchadnezzar in a way that he wasn't gracious to Pharaoh. I mean, uh, he hardened Pharaoh in, in a much more definite way. But anyway, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, by great acts of judgment, why? Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord 
when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Why is God doing this? Not just for the good of his people, but so that the Egyptians too will know he is God. He is the Most High. So why is he doing this with Nebuchadnezzar? Not just for the good of Nebuchadnezzar, but so that all his kingdom will know that he is the Most High God. He rules the world. It's not just right there, but just one more example closer to Daniel. Back in Ezekiel, just turn back a few pages from where you are in Daniel to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel's the book right before Daniel, and 36 is toward the end of that book. So Ezekiel 36, this is when God is talking about um, the new covenant that's going to be coming in Christ. So this is an example, Exodus is an example before Nebuchadnezzar, Then you see how he's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. This is an example of how God is going to act in the future. And what does he say, beginning in verse 22, before he prophesies this coming new covenant in Christ? He says in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God, when through you, through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And then he prophesies the, what the new covenant will actually be. So over and over again, God acts, he, even when he's not acting in a saving way, he's acting in a way that you will know, you will not have any question that he's God, that he rules the, he rules the nations, right? And that's how he had acted with Nebuchadnezzar. But as time rolled on, and that's the last words you have from Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 4 where he has this great um, statement that, uh, that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures for generation to generation. But then you, time rolls on and, and, and you have uh, Nebuchadnezzar's gone and Belshazzar's on the throne now and, and they begin to take for granted all that had been built under Nebuchadnezzar and forgot all the lessons that he had to learn the hard way. Right, so Belshazzar simply presumed upon all that favor and grace. In fact, he didn't feel like he needed it. We know that because verse 2, he, he throws his pride right in God's face when for no good reason at all, in verse 2, it says that he commanded uh, that the servants bring in the gold and silver cups that had been stolen out of Solomon's temple. Right? Why? Uh, this wine's great. These cups aren't good enough. Let's get those cups that were taken out of the temple uh, of the Lord and drink from those. They took what was meant for the glory of God and they glorified themselves with it. And it even says in verse 4 that they, they praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They glorified themselves and the creation rather than the creator. Had no, had no regard for God whatsoever. And he didn't believe that anybody besides himself controlled the events of his life. And that's how Nebuchadnezzar started out. That's how Belshazzar's acting here. And for all he knew, things would go on according to his desires for as long as he wanted them to. And we know that's the case because over a hundred years earlier, God had uh, indicated that very thing through the prophet Isaiah. 
All right? So God is prophesying through Isaiah of Babylon in Isaiah. Uh, oh, we don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. Uh, of, of Isaiah, uh, through Isaiah, in Isaiah 47, 8. And here's what he says of Babylon, and it fits what's happening here. He says of Babylon, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures. I'd say that's what's going on here. Who sit seek securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is none, no one besides me. That, that is Belshazzar's mindset here. That, that's exactly it. And, and God would go further two, two verses later, and he, and he would say, you, and you put, put, imagine he's saying this directly to Belshazzar. It fits. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. And why else would you be so brazen to take the things of the temple of the Lord and, 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 and commit debauchery with them? You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am. And there is no one besides me. So that's a sobering place to be. Belshazzar felt exactly like that. He felt secure in taking the things that were meant for the worship of God and using them for himself, for his own pleasure, for, in, in, in wickedness, precisely because he, he thought exactly like God had said through Isaiah, I am, and there's nobody besides me. He thought, there's, there's no God who sees or hears what I'm doing, and even if there is, I'm not accountable to him. I've got all the time in the world, and I'll live how I want to live in the time that I have. And when my time is up, nothing will happen. Or if, there, if something does happen, I'll be rewarded because I'm me. Belshazzar was an Old Testament example of the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12 about the rich fool. It's an Old Testament example of Jesus' parable. So think about that parable. Jesus said in Luke 12, verses 16 through 22, he said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So this is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's funny, that guy in Jesus' parable sits back and he says, soul, he tells, he tells his soul what he thinks is true about his soul and God has the final word. No, I'm saying your soul is required this night. And that was a parable that Jesus told, not just because it was the mindset that characterized Belshazzar 700 years before it, but because of the reality that we are all like that to a certain extent. Don't come down hard on Belshazzar unless you're prepared to come down hard on yourself. All right? We all slip into that way of thinking. We all forget that we, we live our lives, every moment of our lives, in the, in the sight of God, in the presence of God. Not just God seeing from afar off, but God there with you. 
Right? I forget that. And Bel- that, that, was, that, was, that was Belshazzar's pride. And we can all be that prideful. We are all that prideful that, that so many times. And it may not be as boastful as Belshazzar's, but it's just as forgetful. And it's just as prideful. And so prevalent is it that, that not only does Jesus warn, it, warn us through that parable right there, but other places, even James. In James, in James chapter 4, famous passage, but he says, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's, it's easy to forget God as you go about whatever it is you do in your daily life. I mean, we presume upon His grace. We presume upon His patience. We presume upon time. So when we think about what Belshazzar was doing here, it should humble us just a little bit because the same pride and presumption that filled him also fills me more times than I would like to admit. But in this story, in Daniel 5, God, as we read, kind of breaks into Belshazzar's reality sort of in a unique way. God, what does God do with the hand appearing? God, what God is doing in that moment is simply making visible to him what was true all along, right? And that was his presence. All of life, every moment of your life is lived before God. Um, that has been a, a thought, a controlling thought for all of church history, the uh, the ancient phrase for that, and the church fathers would say, all of life is coram Deo, before God. Before God, in His presence. And, and the beginning of verse 5, the most famous episode of this story begins. A hand appears out of nowhere <laughs> and begins to write a very specific message on the wall, a message that we're going to think about in just a minute. But at this point, I want to focus on how God manifested His presence here. And also Belshazzar's reaction to it. When we see this hand appear out of nowhere and begin writing on the wall, we need to understand, if we don't already, that this is a very unique way of God manifesting his presence uh, in, in that room. That's not to say that God looks like that, right? That God has hands, right? Uh, any more than back in Genesis 15, God is literally a flaming torch that appeared to Abraham, right? Or he's a burning bush that appears to Moses. Or uh, he's a pillar of fire or a cloud as it appeared in the Exodus. I mean, God manifests himself in a lot of different forms, but that's not literally what he's like. But because Scripture says that God is so holy and pure, why does it, why do, what I'm answering is why does it, why does he appear this way? Because he's so holy and pure, and man is so sinful, we cannot look at him and live. He, he has to manifest himself in other ways that we can see and not die, but are just as unmistakable, right? And here, it was in the form of a mysterious hand, right, before his eyes, attached to no man, writing a message on the wall. So, 
right beside him. So it, it kind of obviously caught his attention, and when Belshazzar saw it, look at the way he reacts, which is not surprising to say the least, in verse 6. And it says his color changed. That's not surprising. It says his thoughts alarmed him. I can imagine that. It also says his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. That is a possible translation of what the Aramaic actually says. <laughs> uh, the original language literally says the knots of his joints were loosened. The knots of his joints were loosened, um, which could mean his legs gave way. Um, but it's also very possible that that's an idiom, idiom that meant he wet his pants. <laughs> Better than number two. Um, needless to say, the presence of God shook him to his very core. And reality set in very deeply. I mean, we get, we get glimpses of that, what that must have been like. And I don't, I don't want to make light of other, of, of like tragedies that have happened. But think, think like at, at, a, at a big event at a big party or a concert or something like that. And everybody is everybody's full of themselves, basically. And then something tragic happens in the middle of it, how the mood just immediately changes. The, 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 whole, the whole scene changes. Because something, some reality, something reality had break, bringing had just come in. Right? And that's what, that's what happened here. And it kind of, it kind of made me think of a, a proverb that has always stood out for me. It's, um, it's like something that he knew was always true, but was trying to ignore when it manifests itself. He wet his pants. Like this proverb, Proverbs twenty-eight eight one says, "The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion." The wicked flee. When no one pursues. The, the wicked are jumpy in their heart, even when nobody's after them. You know? No matter how loud, no matter how confident sounding, no matter how proud, they already know deep in their heart that they will be held accountable for it one day. It's true for every one of us. God gave every one of us something called a, a conscience. He's written his heart his law on our, on our heart, we know deeply what is right from wrong. But Romans 1 says that even though we have that and we know it in our hearts, we suppress it in unrighteousness. And we put our fingers in our ears, keep walking, we're trying to convince ourselves it's not true, do anything not, to occupy ourselves and not think about it, get our mind off it, but we never fully can. God, didn't, God made us where we can't do that. We're already fleeing when nobody's even chasing us. I Meaning our conscience is already getting the, the better of us. And so, even, and so when, when what we're already afraid of in our conscience actually does come to pass, you, get, you, you, you wet your pants. Especially when that reality is, 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 is God's very presence in the room. It's, it's terrifying. It's utterly terrifying. Brother Al has been preaching on, on the book of Revelation on Sunday nights, and he switched that, the very last chapters, 
to Sunday morning. And so this morning it'll be Revelation 20. Um, but last Sunday, if you were here, he preached through Revelation 19. It's a stout chapter about the second coming of Christ. And um, <laughs> I don't know if you've paid careful attention to the descriptions it gives of, of unbelievers when Christ returns. Like it, it says that they are looking for any possible way to hide. It says they're... Earlier in Revelation, it, it, it describes it again. It said they're calling out for the mountains and the hills and the rocks to fall on them even and hide us from him who's coming. That was Belshazzar in that moment. And he didn't know what to do. But the story isn't just about a hand appearing. It's also about what that hand wrote on the wall. And in that, we see the purpose of God. So let's think about what that hand wrote. Skipping all the way down to verse 25. We're told that the words that were written were these. Meany, meany, tekel, and parson. They were Aramaic words. And they spoke Aramaic. I mean, and so, and, and Daniel even tells us what they mean. It was not the surprise. What they literally mean, like what the words mean. It's the message as a whole that he that perplexed him. So the, the words, meany, means to number. To number. Tekel means to weigh something or to assess something. And parson means to divide. To divide. After going round and round, Daniel, Belshazzar's wife had enough uh, sense to tell him to call Daniel and uh, and Daniel tells him in verses 26 to 28 what it means like what the message is why why did these why did God say these things and it was basically this that the days of the Babylonian kingdom were numbered right and 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 not only been numbered but they've been numbered because that God has weighed them and assessed them and found them wanting and his kingdom would be divided up between other nations, namely the Medes and the Persians. And Darius the Mede takes over by the end of the chapter. Belshazzar was killed that very night. Darius the Mede took over. The point is what has been the point all of Daniel so far. That it is always God's purpose that prevails. It is Always God's purpose that prevails. We've been seeing that all along. Way back in chapter 2. Way back in chapter 2 verse 21. We read uh, Nebuchadnezzar say that of God. That he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And that God's purpose always prevails. And not just in the big things of life. Times and seasons and kings, but in every little detail. Um, that's not just the way I want to understand it. That's what Jesus says. Every hair of your head is numbered. 
And not, a, not even a sparrow, not even the smallest of birds falls to the ground apart from the will of your father. You know? Belshazzar's uh, predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, learned that lesson before he died. And again, said in, Dan in Daniel 4.35 that God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God's purpose will be accomplished. That's another reason why you need to fill your head with the Bible and read the Bible. Read it, read it, read it, memorize it. Because otherwise, if I just sit here and tell you, God's purposes will always prevail. If you have no idea what God's purposes are, that's a vacuous statement I just made. It doesn't mean much to you, right? But if you've, if you've filled your head with Scripture and you've, you have his purposes in your head. They come to your mind. His purposes in Christ Jesus. In your mind. And I tell you, on the authority of God's word, that his purposes will always come to pass. It's a breathtaking thing. Nebuchadnezzar was exactly right. He ought to know. When you go to the book of Revelation, I'll mention that one more time. Um, especially at the very end, you might have noticed in reading Revelation that Babylon gets mentioned a lot. Babylon is, it makes an appearance. And in the book of Revelation, God holds Babylon up that we've just read, the rise and fall of Babylon in, in the early chapters of Daniel. In chapter 1, Babylon was on its rise. In chapter 5, Babylon's on its way out. God holds up Babylon in Revelation as a symbol of all that this world has to offer. As the best that this world can be. Right? Babylon is a, is a symbol in, in God's word in Revelation. A symbol of all the glory and of all the power and of all the pleasure that can be had in this world. And the last picture we have of that worldly kingdom is a great and magnificent feast. It was brought to end in a moment. Don't, don't put your hope in the joy and the pleasures of this world. The Revelation talks about another feast that will be given in a kingdom that will never end. Marriage supper of the Lamb. And those who are invited are those who have trusted and given their lives to Christ who came that we might have life here and have it abundantly and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. And I pray that as we think about it, um, I pray that we would not display the very pride of Belshazzar in the way that we assess ourselves in light of this story. But that we would think as we think, as we examine ourselves in light of this story, we would not say, how am I like Daniel, but how am I like Belshazzar? Uh, and show us how much we need Jesus and might be ever more thankful that we have Jesus and know Jesus and Jesus knows us through faith in his name. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
So the questions I want you to consider in the last few minutes that we have are these. How are we like Belshazzar in this story? How should we respond to the truth and the reality of God's constant presence? And how does knowing God will all God always accomplishes will always accomplish his purpose comfort us who follow Christ as Savior and Lord? All right. Get after it.